and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is you're transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. If this is your first time here at the podcast, welcome. Glad to have you with us. I work as a mental performance coach and an executive coach where I help my clients either unlock their potential or see new possibilities so that they can enjoy success. And I love the work that I do for a living. I get to have in-depth, deep conversations with my clients and help them create actions that will help them perform better or show up better and be the best version of themselves. And so I fired up this podcast to do just that with people that I know and and many people that I don't know. And today is somebody, uh, today's guest is somebody that I didn't know before we fired up the mic, so it's lots of fun. And we're just grateful to have you here. If you like this conversation, go over to iTunes and write us a review. Uh, if you like this conversation, please share it on social media. Both of those things really help us expand our reach. Now to today's guest. Safu Bernard was connected to me by a former guest, Stu Singer. And as you'll find out during this conversation, we actually are connected many other ways. The basketball world is a small, connected world. And especially if you're a lifelong learner like Sefu is. So he is in charge of player development for the Washington Mystics. He works with them on their skill development and pretty much everything that involves basketball. And you'll find out quickly that Sefu really values people. He really looks at players from a holistic perspective but he's obsessed with trying to help them get to another level. So Sefu's going to share his journey with us today. He's going to be extremely vulnerable and talk about things that he said to me after we finished recording that he just doesn't often talk about with people. So I appreciate his vulnerability, and I know you will as well. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you Sefu Bernard. Sefu, so excited to have you on the podcast. You were recommended to me by Stu Singer, who's a friend and a uh, colleague in, in mental performance arms and uh, excited to chat with you. You're a local guy, you're in the DC area. And I was like chatting with people that are, are nearby and perhaps where we can start is uh, give me an idea of what life was like for you as a kid. So take us back to your childhood and what life was like for you back then. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, Stu is a colleague who's become a good friend and a confidant, somebody who uh, is a great sounding board. 
Um, I am DC based during the WNBA season, but uh, actually live abroad overseas. The Cayman Islands is home for me now. Uh, and prior to that, um, you know, I, I was in Asia for a period of time working for the NBA, but I'm originally from Canada. And so when you ask about my childhood, it, it would all start there. Um, although a, a portion of my preteens were in the Bahamas. Um, and my family is originally from Jamaica. So I've got roots in the Caribbean. And maybe that's why all these years later, I find myself back there. I, I love my country, but uh, I do not like the cold. <laughs> so I find myself in warm weathered places. Um, you know, childhood for me was, was a blast, you know, grew up, um, was born in Canada, but went to, to the Bahamas early when my, my parents split. And so growing up in a small Caribbean island was, was free form. It was unstructured. We went to school and then came home and just played, you know, we just rode our bikes, skateboarded, we're in on the beaches a lot. And, um, in the bush a lot because we were surrounded by greenery and it was lush and plush and I was surrounded by family. Uh, and then moved back to Canada and uh, loved my years um, growing up in Toronto. That's, that's home. I'll always consider it home for me. Um, and that's when I got introduced to, I guess, sport in a more formalized sense. But I grew up in a uh, low to low middle class uh, part of the inner city and but we had a big uh, apartment building with just tons of kids and we're surrounded by adults who just looked out for us as long as we stayed straight they didn't really mess with us and you know we did cause tr trouble but it wasn't so much uh, bad trouble it was just normal kid stuff and so that's where I got introduced to sport uh, formally and informally from bike riding to more skateboarding to badminton to you know we just did it all as kids we played we swam we did uh, everything and so i um you know that kind of uh free form unstructured play environment is one that uh, i look back fondly on and um really gave me a foundation for where i'm at now and what i value and um and i'm appreciative of it you know it's led me to where i am as as uh, are all the people who surrounded me and kind of lifted me up when I went astray. Hizifu, I want to go back. When did mom and dad split? Uh, I would have been two at the time. So your whole life, they, they've been separate for the most part. You, can you remember anything when you were two years old and it was going on? I've got faint memories. Um, <laughs> I've got faint memories of it all. Um, and I think some of the things that I... I do recall were were not necessarily ones that were my memories, but were memories that were shared either through conversations with my brother or after the fact conversations with my parents. And you know how you patch things together and and sometimes difficult to discern which were my memories or which were ones that were were brought back to me because I was so young when it happened. Um, I don't look back at it as being a negative, although there was some there were some, you know, some challenging moments, both, uh, for, for my brother and I as kids going through it and, um, and for my parents trying to figure it out with two young boys. And when did you give me the timeline as far as moving and 
who you moved with and just paint that picture a little bit more for us. When my parents split, my brother and I moved to the Bahamas with my mom. This is when you were two, two years old. Yeah, I would have been two. My brother would have been about four. Um, my mom's parents, my grandparents on my mom's side had relocated from Jamaica to the Bahamas uh, a number of years before. So would your and mom, is your mom Jamaican? Is that yes. how she's Jamaican? Yeah. 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 My mom and dad grew up not that far from each other and, uh, in, uh, in Jamaica and then uh, her parents relocated the Bahamas, uh, when they split. Yeah. My mom went to Bahamas. My, um, my grandmother, uh, was an educator, uh, and she taught there. My, my grandfather was a welder originally after serving in the military for a period of time. And my mom was an educator. So she went there and began teaching. My dad, uh, stayed in Canada. And then at about eight years old, we, we relocated, uh, to Canada. <laughs> I mean, I say it affectionately. You know, we look back at it fondly, but, uh, my dad showed up in the Bahamas. You know, my parents were trying to figure out how to rear, rear these two kids. My brother and I are completely different. And, uh, in the trying to figure it out, having two boys that were different, how, dad, how, how are you guys different? <laughs> um, you know, I would say at that time I was more compliant and you could probably on the surface say I was easier to, to rear as a parent. That's neither good nor bad. Uh, it just was, it, it, it was who I was and the difference was, it wasn't that my brother was bad. He wasn't, he was just, um, more assertive, more out there, more expressive, more adventurous. Whereas I, and he was good for me because I was more, you know, a yes, mom, yes, dad, yes, teacher, you know, and he was just, you know, he was out there doing what, what young kids do, you know? Uh, he, he wasn't, so I didn't want to paint him with the wrong color, color brush at that time, but it was more challenging for, for my mom dealing with one kid who's just like a, you know, yes, yes, yes. And the other one's going, well, tell me why, <laughs> you know? It's and the, so uh, it's, so I have a three and a half year old and two and a half year old and our oldest is a boy, youngest is a girl and they're 14 months apart. And our oldest is, sounds like you and our daughter sounds like your brother. I mean, mm. And I always say to my wife, like the defiance that our daughter has at two and a half is really difficult and is challenging and <laughs> causes us stress. Um, <laughs> but at 26, like that defiance, that willingness to, to challenge and to, to go forth fearlessly, I think will probably serve her. And, um, you know, especially for a female and a girl, like, having some fierceness and we're going to talk about the WMBA at some point, but um, you know, I think we'll serve her well. And Absolutely. so it is interesting though, because the nature and nurture debate when you have kids, especially when they're close together in age and you haven't changed that much, like the nature of both of our kids are just so different. And I think to your point, it's not good or bad, but when you're raising them, you're like, yeah, there's easy and hard. And so it's hard to not think that that's good and bad, but um, it's just not necessarily 
good or bad for that moment. And that doesn't mean that that is going to not serve them in other ways. So as you were talking, I could just relate to that so much. And I, I love this concept of nurturing people's nature and mm. so that we all have a nature and it's up to the people that care about us to really help us nurture that. And so like I've, I've really come across the, the idea on, on nature and nurture that it's, it's both, it's a combination and um, it's up to all of us to nurture our own nature. And um, so it was just cool to hear you talk about your brother in that way. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, I've got a, um, you know, I've got a son, he's, he's seven and I have moments where I see pieces of the young me and then pieces of the young, my brother. And as I've grown, I've come to appreciate the young brother side that's <laughs> in him, you know, and it's this great debate in and around education around uh, oftentimes we ask for obedience. And I realize more and more now that I'm not interested in obedience. There's time to be disobedient. And so how do I nurture this quality in my son now as a parent? And at the same time, understand there's just sometimes you just got to do what you, you know, I need you to <laughs> follow suit. But when, but when is that? When do I allow him the freedom and the flexibility to do what he wants? And, and uh, so I can see why at moments where I'm like, man, I wish he was a little more uh, <laughs> obedient. Um, yeah. So anyhow, that was, that was us as, as young kids. And, but Sifu, you were saying dad came down there. Uh, and then, so did he say, Hey, I, I want you guys to come back to Toronto and I want to be active in your life. Or what was that conversation like? And even if you could go into that vivid memory, it sounds like, uh, you know, he came down, I think you said you were eight years old, uh, when you moved back. So he comes down there and, um, what was it, what was going on in your mind as that was all going on? Well, my dad was always very active in our lives, even when, um, my parents were, were had separated and it was, you know, the, the wounds were, uh, were fresh, so to speak. Um, he was always there, always present. You could feel it. Um, and the one quality that I appreciate about my dad is that he would do anything for his kids. And so, um, you know, things led, one thing led to another and he showed up on the island. He's like, look, I'm here. And uh, we can talk about this now openly, you know, as a family, but he showed up. My mom didn't know he was there. Um, we were playing outside and we, I just remember looking down and going, dad. <laughs> and he said, hey, let's go for a walk. And we, we went into this, one of these little uh, small spots where he had a little tree house, a little place where we used to hang out as kids and just off the road in, in Freeport, Bahamas, where we, where we grew up. And we just sat down and he just said, hey, you know, um, would like you guys to come, come live with me. And my brother, being the adventurous one, and, and I'm sure uh, uh, somebody could break it down from a Freudian perspective that he needed this more fatherly presence in his life was just like, yes. And me being who I was at that time was like, okay, if he's going, I'm going, you know, I was again, compliant. And so my brother jumped right in and I just said, okay, you know, and the deal was, uh, he said, Hey, I remember he said, I'll, I'll come pick you up tomorrow afternoon. You can't say anything to anybody, um, your mom or 
or anybody because, you know, uh, 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 nobody would know. They would have shut it down pretty quickly. And he showed up the next day when he said he was in the taxi and we hopped in the taxi with him and uh, we flew from Freeport, Grand Bahamas to Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And it wasn't until we landed. And uh, I mean, I, I remember all this very vividly, but we landed in, in uh, Toronto and then called my mom all those hours later. And I just remember um, him saying, hey, call your mom. And we did. And she was panicked and yet relieved to hear because she, for I don't know how many hours, I mean, the flight itself would have been about four hours. So give or take six plus hours, she, you don't know where your boys are. And it would have been nighttime at this point. And um, she's like, where, where were you? And we're like, we're in Canada. And she's like, where, you know, we're like, Canada, Canada, you know, we're with dad. And um, yeah, they had, you know, the whole family had quite a, quite a few relatives in, in the Bahamas and my grandparents were well known. They'd been searching the island as we were told for us, you know, thinking probably the worst um, only to find out we were with our dad and we moved back to Canada. Um, and really, you know, that's the, like my last memory of that other than my mom then deciding she's going to move to Toronto to be with us and near us. We stayed with my dad um, for a period of time. Um, I mean, from my, my, my brother ended up staying with my dad right through his pre-college years. Um, but I had stayed with my dad and then I ended up moving back with my mom <laughs> in my early teens. But, um, yeah, vivid memory. And, and, um, you know, it's one of those things, um, where my compliance, I guess, served because, uh, I, not unbeknownst to myself, I needed what my dad was bringing, um, preteens, you know, I, I struggled with, um, well, I was, I was obese as a kid. Um, not many people know that. And there's only a handful of people know, know that about me. And my dad's interpretation of that was, was it was because I was struggling, uh, I don't know, repressed issues with the divorce. You know, I don't know. I was a kid at the time. I just knew that to be who I was. Um, and his, his solution was activity. So when we moved in with him, he got us active. I mean, I was, he would have us waking up at six in the morning and running over two kilometers, you know, uh, every day before school, we'd come in and we'd do this program called the 20 minute workout, which was like, uh, you know, uh, sweating to the seventies and, you know, uh, you know, trainers and leotards and stuff. We do that all before school. Um, and so I guess, uh, as I went through that next transition, so much of who I was becoming, was anchored around sport and movement. And for that, I'm, I'm grateful. I needed that from my dad. If you go back to that moment where your dad shows up on the island, you now have a seven-year-old. Yeah. Can, can you put yourself <laughs> in your mom's shoes? Um, you know, if your seven-year-old son um, all of a sudden was up and, and gone and, and what would, what, what would you feel and, and how would you feel? And, um, I'm just curious to get your perspective on that. I don't think I could. You know, I think I could. I. It's difficult. There's some things you just cannot empathize with, or or really feel in the same way. Um, I know, and I've thought about it. You know, I, I I 
because I didn't see how she handled it, I can only imagine how gut-wrenching it would be. And yet that was probably only a small fraction of what she was really feeling. Both uh, for those, those probably seemingly endless hours of not knowing where your child was and not having any answers or any clue. I mean, we, we disappeared, you know, from her perspective, we would have disappeared. We'd been playing and we would have disappeared. And, you know, the afternoon would have turned to evening. The evening would have turned to night. I just can't even imagine. And then even up to the moment when she knew we were safe, there's no peace because of how it would have happened and with whom it would have happened with. Because there was real, you know, there's real tension there between them. I don't think, I don't think I would have had her strength. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't know how I would have coped with that. It would have been a real challenge. How did she respond when she moved up to Toronto and um, what was their relationship like after that? My mom is one of the most resolute people that I've known. And pregnant from a child's perspective, looking back without filling in the blanks, um, you know, the filling of the blanks came over the years after the fact. What I remember was my mom saying, okay, I'm moving to Toronto, moving back to Toronto. She also lived, uh, I went to school in Toronto prior to, um, and she just showed up and she dug in. She, she just figured out um, life, you know, and she, I remember her making a ton of sacrifices. She went from being an independent uh, woman um, to having to move in with family and live in a basement apartment and reinvent herself career-wise. Um, but never, ever did I ever feel her grief. She never put that on us. Um, she just figured it out, you know, and, and resurrected herself until she was able to, you know, um, move back out, you know, on her own. And uh, she ended up remarrying. Yeah. If you could give three values that mom passed down to you, what would they be? And then three values that dad passed down to you, what would those be? Wow. This is, this is deep. <laughs> I don't know if I have, it's difficult. I'm, 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 Hey, this is fun because, uh, I don't often get to say out loud to my mom or my dad, what I feel about them and the gratitude I have for them because in, in different ways they served me. Um, my mom There's a, you know, for my mom, I think um, faith, optimism. Um, you know, I talked about how resolute she is. You know, there's a conviction in belief in my mom that she's infected me with, you know, this, you know, find the good. Um, I think I, so many of the, the messages that she echoed in my childhood still find their way in me um, all these years later. Um, 
and now I pass them on to my son and, and, you know, those things I'm grateful for my dad. Um, this, 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 he's, um, his, his humor, uh, and it's weird to say it. I'm sure my siblings would, would, would probably find it funny that I led with humor, but he just has, uh, an infectiousness about him that, um, that, uh, he, I, the way he moves about the world and would turn a stranger into a friend, you know, was such a, an amazing quality, a charisma about him. Uh, my dad, this kind of, this, this fierceness, you know, you know, this comp he brought out uh, a competitiveness, uh, a drive that even I didn't know uh, I had in me. And forever I'm grateful, like this kind of, you know, lead yourself, nobody owes you anything type mentality. Um, you know, I'm probably quite uh, apathetic as a kid. You know, I think, uh, you know, that had to do with some of my obesity and indifference and that whole compliance thing led me to be um, quite uh, inactive. And, it was, you know, my dad's like, no, 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 no. That's not how, I'm not playing with that. Let's go, <laughs> you know. What, what, did it feel, what did it feel like to be obese as a kid? Can you go back to that? those feelings and what it was like to, for lack, I was going to say to carry that weight. And I didn't even mean it in like, um, the physical weight, but to carry that with you. I remember, you know, when I was in the Bahamas, I, I, I never thought about it. It was just, it was just me. And I was never led to feel or believe I was anything less than I was loved on completely. Um, but from both of my parents and in the Bahamas, you know, grandparents, cousins, aunts, you know, coming to uh, coming back to Canada, I never felt less than I, there's, there's no scarring. I mean, I had moments I remember uh, where I was like, man, I've got breasts, you know, like, like literally like feeling like, holy cow, or, or, uh, you know, I had moments, you know, inner thigh, inner thigh chafing, you know, the, the jeans rubbing going, what the heck? Um, and that was probably the first time I, I had an awareness for it. But around the time that that was, was happening was, was right when I was with my dad and we were moving, like physically moving. Like I talked about running and, you know, he got us playing soccer and, you know, I moved into this building. So I was always active. So it didn't take much uh, for me to become invested in something else. I don't think I, I carried any psychological damage, damage, sorry, wrong word. But, you know, I just, I moved and it was maybe some six, you know, when I was 14, 15, I remember looking in the mirror going, whoa, what the heck? You know, it's. I'm growing, I'm taller, my body was different, but I never, between eight and then, I never thought much about it. I was just too busy playing. So I want to go into the lighter side, which is the playing. And you mentioned soccer. You've got Jamaican parents. Uh, you're living in Toronto. And Toronto <laughs> now is like this basketball hotbed and not even to do with the Raptors winning the championship, 
but they're now producing a lot of NBA players, but um, I don't know how old you are, if basketball was really popular back then. Um, but, you know, and you've got this Jamaican background with soccer, I would imagine. Uh, you're in Toronto where hockey is uh, king. Um, when did the basketball start to get into your hands and, and what intrigued you about it? Toronto has always been, see, I think the one thing that gets uh, uh, missed when you talk about Toronto and the difference between, say, Canada and the U.S. is, you know, Toronto specifically, Canada in general, is multicultured, you know. And I grew up from West Indian family, surrounded by people from different islands, and at the same time, I mean, I, I grew up with, you know, Ukrainians, Polish, uh, Indian, uh, people from all different parts of Asia. Uh, some of my closest friends were Italian. My one buddy was Hungarian. You just had this, this hodgepodge, not a melting pot, but a hodgepodge of people from all over the world. Why do you, so, use, why do you use hodgepodge and not melting pot? That was intentional. Why, you, why do you change that word? Yeah, because... Growing up as a kid, we were multicultural. We, you embraced the, the cultures of people wherever they were from. You celebrated them, which is different than melting pot. You know, in the U.S., you say, hey, I'm American. And you almost strip away whichever that other identity was, whether you're you know, you know, newly uh, emigrated to the U.S., whether you're first gen or second generation, you'd all of a sudden you're American. Everybody's American melting pot, right? The difference in Canada, we'd say multicultural. You've got, you've got people who've lived in, in especially, you know, your major hubs that have been there 20, 30 years, like buddies of mine, who's, who's um, sometimes their parent or a grandparent lived in Toronto for 20 plus years, 30 years, and don't speak English. They speak Portuguese, so Italian. You know, I remember going to my friend's house. We go there all the time for Italian lunch is the best lunch. You know, we go there all the time and we eat up. And the grandparent would, uh, you know, she wouldn't speak English. And she'd been in the country. So it's mo- you'd celebrate. You know, you'd say you're Jamaican Canadian, you're Italian Canadian, you're Irish Canadian, you're Indo Canadian, whatever it may be. And that's it's a subtle yet significant point of differentiation where you embrace it. We celebrated, uh, I, I went to school in a predominantly Jewish school, you know, uh, and it was great. Loved all the Jewish holidays. I celebrated them all. At one point I was walking around and I learned about all these black Jews and I'm like, oh. people would say, why are you going to that school? And, and um, you know, I was going there because it, they had a, a great uh, math, computer and science um, program there. But I just embraced it. Some of my closest friends were Jewish. And so I was like, yeah, I'm a black Jew, you know, because I was, you know, the building I lived in wasn't predominantly Jewish. We were, uh, you know, just different makeup there. And so I kind of left that group of kids I grew up to go to this school. And but I embraced it all. So I'm so well, they'd ask me why I was on holiday. I'm like, well, you know, and you so say you start to have the conversation, but nobody would flinch. It was. Were you were you gifted at math and science from a young age? It sounds like that was that was also a big part of it. I came from educators. You so know, dad, my dad, dad was also in education? Well, no. My dad was, my dad was get it done. My words, not his. 
You know, we come home from school and his expectation, we just go to work. My mom, and this is where I'll forever be grateful to my mom, was, hey, I'm going to help you. Let me support you. My mom was an educator. So I, I don't think I was gifted. I just came from a woman who was a teacher. And she, she was always bolstering what we weren't getting in school. So it wasn't that I was smarter than the others, but I just had somebody who would, who would help, you know, provide the scaffold that we needed. Um, so, yeah, she, from an academic standpoint, if not for my mom, you know, I don't think I would have, um, you know, achieved in school the way I needed to because I had different needs, not special needs, and just different needs. And my mom was there for me late nights, uh, early morning. Yeah, all of that. Um, and, but I had, I, go ahead. I was just going to say, in basketball, when, when basketball? When, how, let's get to basketball. Basketball. Um, th- that came from growing up in that building. You know, like Toronto, like basketball, people are only getting switched on to Canada in general as a hotbed for sport now. But, you know, basketball has always been, if you're from the inner city, and I, I don't want to, you know, all, all my friends are coming from rural communities and, and many of the, the, the top athletes um, coming through are, are not from, say, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, you know. But if you were inner city Toronto, you play ball. You know, we grew, I grew up, as soon as I moved to Toronto in that building, we'd do everything. But at the end of the day, we came back and we'd show up on the court and you'd play pickup. And we used to play pickup, one ball, 30 kids, everybody for themselves. You know, it, it's funny. I was just telling my son this story um, as his bedtime story the other night, you know, and that's what got me turned on. Like, you just, you'd go and, you'd go and play ball. We just love to do it. And um, um, to this day, my dad um, has told me I was better. I was better football player, soccer player, and I was better at karate than I ever was at basketball. And he'll never let me live that down. And uh, my only rebuttal is that you know basketball is pretty pretty good to me. <laughs> so what am I going to say? But basketball snatched on my heart, and you know to kind of bring to connect the dots you know this is again where my compliance i guess you know um served me because i just followed my brother my brother was ahead of me whatever my brother did i did he went and played ball i wanted to follow my brother i went and played ball and because of my brother i got switched on to basketball and what what were you like as a basketball player let's go to maybe high school age like what kind of basketball player were you I was, I mean, everything about anybody who knows me knows that I, I wasn't a standout in any one particular skill set. I was scrappy, and I had to be. I was always the smallest player on the court. I was never the most athletic. I was never the quickest. Um, and so I just hustled, and I hustled hard. You know, I, 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 I loved to compete. And again, I got it from my dad. And it was just this no quit, you know, and it took a lot to get there from my dad, but that's what I got from my dad. You know, he, he wasn't going to tolerate us not putting out our best. And, um, 
you know, how he got us there was, uh, was probably by some accounts, you couldn't get away with that now, but I'm grateful for it. Uh, it's not necessarily, that's, that's not how I would parent now, but you know, I'm grateful for it. You know, I'd probably, as far, as, as far as toughness and, and that nature. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, waking your kids up at six o'clock to get them to run. You know, I remember my brother and I, <laughs> you know, he'd wake us up and we'd run, you know, I remember we'd run down this hill. This was the, the big uh, 2K run and we'd have to come back up. And one morning we were, uh, we were walking and it, it, we were passing what was going to become my, my junior high. And there was a kid playing ball. And we're like, yo, who's playing ball? You know, we got closer and closer and we were like, oh, oh no, that's my dad. He was playing, playing basketball. He was just shooting hoops, <laughs> waiting for us. He, he, I don't know, he just knew and he saw us walking. He didn't say anything. And then we got to him and he's like, oh, you guys are going to walk, huh? And he had us run laps and we had to run laps around the track. And at the time I, uh, I was asthmatic. It was athletically induced asthma. My brother. My brother was running. He, he, my dad just says, hey, you know, you can't stop until you catch your brother. And my brother is a really good athlete. Still, I mean, still is. Um, and I couldn't catch him. I was, you know, I was out of shape. And at this point, my asthma kicked in. I was wheezing and I was trying to catch my brother and I was dying. And my dad wouldn't let me stop. So um, it's those kind of moments that in the moment I... Uh, you know, I, uh, I don't know how to say it's nicely, but you know, I, I, you know, angry, bitter, everything, but those moments helped to, to, to create a resolve in me that by the time I got to bigger opponents, uh, challenging coaching, um, you know, nearly getting cut and all that, you know, I just, I just had a, I just had a tenacity that like, they couldn't compare to what I was going to, you know, what I had dealt with before. I want to get into actually what you do now, because I'm just curious, uh, because your dad was training you, even though it wasn't like formal training, um, but he was helping to create behavioral change and instilling yeah. things in you and was using sport running um, to help and also the fitness and the exercising. As you think about your role now, how do you instill competitive spirit into the athletes that you're serving and that you're working with? Well, currently I, I serve um, as the director of player development for the Washington Mystics, the WNBA. By the time a player makes it to the WNBA, you're, you're, you're not really having to worry about a competitive spirit per se in a, in a general sense. I mean, all these players are quite driven. You're more so to me dealing with some habits, you know, and I think anytime an athlete makes a leap from one level or one context to another, the question that they need to ask or will be asked is, around this whole idea of what got you here may not serve you here. 
And this is a hard one, right? So you, 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 you can be a certain way, say collegiately in terms of habits of thought, habits of training. Um, and you can excel at a collegiate level and then you make the leap to play with the best of the best and what made you so good collegiately may hamper your, your development, um, in a professional context, whether it be NBA or WNBA. And that's a hard one to, to uh, help them transition through, but they're all competitive. Yeah. It's not just athletes. I've, I see it in executives too, where the, you know, take a salesperson and they're doing great. They're doing an awesome job. And now they're a sales manager and what got them to where they were as a sales manager is not necessarily what will make them a great sales manager. Mm-hmm. And so I, I love that phrase. Like, you know, what got you here may not get you there. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I'm, I want to flip it and actually ask you that question. So here you are, you're working with pro athletes. Uh, you guys are having a great year so far. You work with some of the best players in the world. Uh, you've also worked with men uh, at, you know, elite levels. Uh, what has gotten you here? I'm just, let's start with that question. What is, what has gotten you to where you are today? Perhaps, you know, a little bit of that, that resolve that we talked about before. Um, I've never been focused on making the, the, the next step per se. I've never been like, okay, here's where I want to go. I, I, I've always had an idea an intention. Um, my, 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 my guiding principle for me is I want to become world-class as a teacher coach. And I think what's allowed me to, to, to um, make connections with, with the people that I get to work with is um, I genuinely care about supporting them to make that next leap. I really, I really genuinely do. And so um, I'm always uh, walking around with this sole idea that, that uh, um, one of my favorite quotes, this above all to thine own self be true. And I, I've always felt, and I think it's just me, you know, when, you know, Sue and I talk a lot about uh, confidence and what role confidence plays in performance. Um, I don't think I've ever struggled with confidence, but I have, I do have moments still to this day where I doubt and I just remind myself, you know, this above all to thine own self be true, you know? So I'm standing on a court or I'm in a boardroom with some, some high level people. And I sit there and I'm like, um, what am I doing? Yeah. Imposter syndrome. They call it imposter syndrome. Yes, 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 yes. I have those moments all the time. I, in fact, I have those moments daily. You heard it in our, our, our chat, you know, before I have them all the time. And then inevitably now where I'm at is I just, I just give myself to it. All I can do is be me at the end of the day. But I do have that moment of sometimes nervousness or other times anxiousness. I always do. Um, and that's just a part of who I am. Um, but I've, I've gotten better over the years working through it. And so I try and authentically connect with the people I'm with. I try and stay focused on serving the group that, um, that I'm working with. And I've been fortunate enough that um, there's always been a next step. There's probably only one moment 
when I knew I needed to make a, a pivot and I needed to jump out on my own. And other than that moment, that was when I was with the Toronto Raptors. Other than that moment, I've been fortunate enough to have another opportunity kind of unfold organically, for lack of a better word. Why did you knew you needed to make that move? So when I when I finished when I finished uh, uni- university, and then uh, transitioned into professional into you know the working world, I was fortunate enough to move into pro sport, and I worked uh, at Maple Leaf Sports, which is the Toronto Maple Leafs, Toronto Raptors, um, Major League, uh, the Toronto FC, and they've since gotten bigger, but um, Maple Leaf Sports was absolutely critical and pivotal. And I was fortunate enough to be around some great people and I had worked my way up and I'd worked my way up to the point where I was, um, I was manager of player development for the team and Toronto had, had, you know, as an expansion team, it's, it's tough being an expansion team. If you look at how expansion teams are made up, it's very difficult to create uh, a cohesive group. It takes time. It takes years. And um, part of my growing up was with the growing up of the organization. And you could see it. I started working for um, Maple Leaf Sports in 2000. And I left in 07. And over those years, by the time I had finished in 07, um, you know, I'm, I'm impact driven. Let me see if I can land the ship. This doesn't need to be that long, but I'm impact driven. By the time I left in 07, I was working in the front office, overseeing player development, which predominantly was the social, personal, and professional development of, our, of the players uh, on the team. And we had great guys. You know, I'd been in the role for two years. We'd, we'd transformed our roster. I developed great relationships with these players. We had um, a group of internationals. We had, you know, just young, good guys across the roster. Um, and I, we just finished the season, and I was like, man, these guys are fun, but they don't need me. I, you know, I, I hate to say it like that. You know, we had a young Chris Bosch. Chris Bosch is one of the most quality athletes I've ever worked with. And Chris was great, you know. Um, but Chris, you know, you look at the person that Chris is, forget the athlete, the person, and now the parent that he is. He, I mean, that foundation was laid long before, you know, Chris and I ever had the chance to interact. And, you know, we had other quality guys, Anthony Parker, one of the most uh, grounded, uh, great people. Uh, AP's now, he's the general manager of uh, the Lakeland Magic. He just, I mean, these guys are great guys. And right, right down um, they're good guys. And so what happened was I just was like, man, I want to have impact. And so um, it was tough. I went into our, our, um, our then general manager at the time. And I just said, Hey, I need, I need to make a pivot. Um, and so, yeah, there was a couple opportunities there for me to work with the national teams, uh, Canada basketball. And it was a big leap, and some might say it was a step down, but I felt like this was a great growth opportunity because then I'd have an, an opportunity to have a, a deeper impact and I have more flexibility with my time. Uh, I'd be able to travel more and learn from others. And so, yeah, that's why I made the leap. So during that time from 2000 to 2007, 
you're, it sounds like you're more in the front office. So you don't have, are you on the court with the guys helping them develop? Because uh, player development in 2007 compared to player development in 2019, as far as my perspective, uh, carry different uh, terms now. I, I, I think skill development has just become such a bigger part of basketball. And it wasn't in 2007. It just, you didn't have a, a coaching staffs were much smaller there. Front, front offices were much smaller in 2007 than they are in 2019. So can you just paint the picture of like your day to day in that role and what you were doing? Um, because perhaps it will help uh, fill in the blanks for me as I start to understand where you were coming from. Sure. You're, you're absolutely correct. What player development meant to the NBA in 07, actually 05 when I started uh, in that role is, is dramatically different to what player development means today, both within the league and I think the, the broader conversation. So around 05 was when the, the NBA mandated for teams to have somebody who was specifically um, tasked with helping players transition, whether it be uh, young players transitioning into the league, whether it be a player mid-career maximize their time in the league, uh, or a player at the tail end of their career transition out. Um, every team needed to have somebody. And, you know, again, it goes back to, you know, I, I came to the role, I think, again, because people got the sense that I genuinely cared about, about players. So at the time, I was not working in 05 uh, and prior. I wasn't working in the front office. Um, I done community relations for a number of years for the, uh, the Raptors. I'd done it for the Toronto Maple Leafs. I worked for them for a period of time. I was very involved with social impact uh, programming. Um, I was doing some stuff with the national teams on the side, but I just generally enjoyed making connections. So um, I was doing what was called basketball development at the time. And through that, I had interactions with our, with our coaching staff, with our front office. And Sam Mitchell um, was our head coach. And he and I had a number of collisions, just interactions. And I think he got a sense of who I was and what I was about. And I, I really was not uh, starstruck or lust. I just cared about players and helping serve them. And it was because of that, when the NBA mandated somebody in the role, he asked me to assume the position, which was a little, um, not a little, it was a lot outside of the box. Actually, a lot of people challenged it because they wanted former players to be in that role. They thought they would be better served. Um, because they would know, you know, having lived the life, how to help players. And so it could um, be everything from like, this is how you take care of your suits. This is just, just like a human development. Um, it, it was, it was all encompassing is what it sounds like that role was. 95% of my time had everything to do with things other than basketball. And uh, I, I had some, some great support people, both at the team level, uh, Sam and Wayne Embry, uh, and at the league level. I had a whole network of people. And one of the things that um, I had to learn to navigate was, um, at the time, it, it was difficult. It's difficult sometimes, not at the time, it still is. You know, I had to navigate between the different needs, right? So the, or, the, the, the mandate's coming from the league yet you work for the team. And my function is to support the players. And yet 
you have coaches who have a bent and an inclination for who and what they want players to be doing. And then you have management. These are different groups. And if you're going to work with players, one, you have to, you have to earn their trust and you can't lose it. If you ever lose a player's trust, you're lost. And so you have to navigate that. And at the same time, you can't have, uh, and I think it was, it was more challenging then, more so than now. But coaches' staffs couldn't believe you were just another lackey for the players. And the front office couldn't believe that you were a lackey for the players or another, uh, another you know, part of the coaching staff. So you're in this weird place between these different groups. And you're trying to navigate it, but ultimately you have to serve the players. Um, and so that was one of the biggest challenges for me in that role. But it was all about, I meant different things to different people. You know, we had uh, um, some young Spaniards. Uh, they weren't young, but uh, uh, a young, uh, a new Calderon? to Jose Calderon, yeah. And Jorge Garbajosa had just transitioned. I mean, I, I joke with Jorge, he was the, you know, the 30-year-old NBA rookie or 29 or whatever he was at the time. But, you know, for those guys, you know, like uh, Jose and I did uh, – went to English classes with Jose, you know? And so for him, it was helping him transition into the culture of the NBA and the life of the NBA and the language piece and Jorge to a different extent. And then he had older players who were transitioning out. So it could have been financial services, the whatnot. And some, some guys mid careers, how do you maximize your time? So give us a sense of what your day-to-day looks like today and how that job is different than what you were doing back then. The ratio would be flipped. You know, first, first, you know, the WNBA is resourced differently than the NBA. When we, when I say player development, ninety-five percent of my time has to do with um, how I'm supporting uh, players in their on-court capacity. Ninety-nine percent of my day is on court with players, helping to support them. Now, what I bring forward and my biases, I don't think you can, you know. Players are people first. So my approach to player development starts with the person first and foremost before we even get to the, the basketball stuff. Um, and so, yeah, it's a complete opposite. But I still bring this bias towards, you know, if a player is walking into, the, into the, the gym, into a practice or into the game, and they're carrying life on their mind, they can't be the best performer. So although I'm tasked with, um, you know, skill development, you know, I'm tasked with understanding and, and working with our analytics guys and, you know, and tech and working closely with our, our bigger support team, our mental performance coach and Stu and our strength conditioning coach and our athletic trainer, you know, I'm, I'm the bit of the, the pivot point for all of those, trying to bring all those pieces together. The player is first. And so if a player's walking in with all this other stuff that's weighing them down, you can never get to the thing that they're being hired to do. So I always start with the person first, and then we, we build out from there. I want to go back to you. So we talked about what got you here may not get you there, and you sort of now have outlined, hey, this is what got me here. I don't need you or want you to say, hey, this is what I want to be doing in 10 years. I'm less curious about that when it comes to you. But I am curious about, what you think will get in the way of you getting to wherever you want to go? Like what would be the thing that would limit you to get to wherever it is you want to go? What would get in your way? 
That's a difficult one for me to say because I'm home. Um, and this is difficult. Maybe perhaps for some to understand, like this is full circle for me. I mean, the, probably the piece uh, in my background that was left out is I got my start in pro sports in the WNBA uh, for the then Detroit Shock. That was late 90s. And I'm so grateful to, have, to be right back where I'm at. Um, and I've been fortunate to work with athletes across a number of different sports and different contexts, both domestically, North America, internationally. Um, and I enjoy them all for different reasons, but working with, there's something special about working with the women in the WNBA and it just feels like home. And beyond that, what, what Coach T has created in this organization is just an absolute fit for me in every which way, shape, or form. I mean, that would be a whole nother conversation. So I don't, I don't, um, I don't know what the ne- you know what the next ten years. Is. So for me, it's not a what am I going to be. It's going to be who I'm going to become. I you know I, I touched on it earlier. My my my. I'm always driven on becoming world class in my teaching. I don't think I'm that. Sefu, go so. there. Go go to that place because that's what I'm actually asking. Is okay. What would get in the way of you being world class at your craft? Complacency. You know, it's the uh, forgive my language, but you know when you start to think your shit smells good. <laughs> Um, so I, I try not to swear a lot, but sometimes, you know, some things are just, it's a, it's a podcast. You're allowed to, all right. (laughs) No no rules here. You don't have to be obedient. You're, you're good. All right. Fair enough. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, and I'm not actually too concerned about complacency. Um, I'm just, I'm just wired to learn and grow and, um, I've got strong beliefs that are loosely held to borrow, you know, to paraphrase another, you know, who the things I believe today were not the things I believed to be true 10, 15 years ago. And, you know, what we know, for instance, about the brain now is so much greater than what we knew to be true about it 10 to 15 years ago. And we're only learning and, and, and knowing more. And one of the beautiful things about this, uh, this connection economy that we live in, like everything's getting smaller. There are some great people doing some good things. And um, in my travels and in my interactions, I've been fortunate to be around them. There's, there's, not a, there's, there's not a, you know, a month that goes by where I'm like, oh, no, look at that. This is, oh. Oh, I can't believe I didn't know that before, you know? Um, so for me is, uh, you know, my heart, the hardest thing actually is, is to figure out the signal from the noise to sift through the clutter. And the one thing I think that's most challenging now, and I empathize with the next generation that's, that's coming through is everybody's got a pulpit. And there's so much out there. It's hard, 
you know, like I'll, you lose 45 minutes just trying to sift through your timeline on say Twitter or Instagram to only get that one post. And then when you get that one post, it's like that missing nugget. Then you go, wait a second, if I spend another 45 minutes, I'll get one up, you know, and all of a sudden you've, you've wasted an hour and a half of your day. This is the hardest thing I think right now is to now, uh, you know, to, to narrow the bandwidth of information that's coming to figure out what's got validity, what doesn't, what stuff, you know, um, not to get so caught up in surrounding yourself with people who are, you know, saying the same thing in different ways. And it's just kind of reaffirming your existing beliefs and, you know, and finding things that are going to challenge how you think yet aren't just so wildly outside of the box that, you know, so to, to create a, a mental model for what, what sticks, what do you hold on? This is the biggest challenge I think I'm facing and I feel like a lot of people are facing right now is to sift through it all. Just going back to what you said about complacency, uh, it was so clear that you're so content and you use that word content with like where you are. You're, you're excited by it. You're intrigued by it. You're working with the population that you love to work with. I think too often we get contentment and complacency mixed up and we assume that they're the same thing and they're very, very different. Um, like I think self-fulfillment contentment is actually what drives us to continue to get better. It's the gratitude. It's gosh, I love the work that I do. I love where I'm at. Uh, I love being where my feet are and being in that space. And, and this is where I'm meant to be and I'm focused on what I need to do. And that actually drives success. Um, whereas complacency I think is the enemy of success. Complacency is entitlement. Complacency is like, I'm bored. Uh, I don't want to be here. It's, it's our dark side. And um, I just want to tease that out for people because I know that's been a game changer for me is like, no, complacency is, is not ideal, but self-fulfillment, self-satisfaction, contentment, whatever you want to call that word over there, when you get that, it actually causes you to move forward and drives you. And so that distinction I think is so important because I think often people are afraid to say that they're content um, or they're afraid to say that they're self-satisfied or fulfilled because they believe that that's going to cause them to not keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, and everything that I know, it's the complete opposite that when you get that satisfaction, when you get that fulfillment, you're actually driven to continue to push because you've got something that you care about. And to use your word earlier, you can make an impact. Um, so I think that's just a really cool construct that I leverage in my life um, and in my career as well. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's beautifully said. Um, I th- this, you were kind of touching on for me, the, 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 the duality that exists in things, you know, it's okay for two opposing things to exist um, sometimes. And, and uh, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, Manawatsa, Manawatsaism, which I've now taken on to be my own, is this notion of being happy with today while still wanting more for tomorrow. These two things can coexist. And for me, you know, I, I have I, you know, daily intention, you know, I love the, the name and the, the drive behind this podcast, but, but I wake up genuinely feeling grateful probably my only redeeming quality sometimes, you know, I'm genuinely grateful. I don't need to remind myself to be grateful, but I have these, I wake up grateful 
not just for what I'm doing, but you know, for the life I've lived, for things that have, I, this is my grounding. Uh, it's just, I'm just, I, and I, I have moments where I just am overwhelmed by gratitude. And at the same time, I'm driven. I have an, in, an insatiable desire to improve. And there was a time where um, I almost was made to, to feel like it was a bad quality. You know, and I, now I'm just like, oh, no, this is me. You know, this is me. This is just how I am. Um, and I, I, I have confidence and I wear it proudly. Like I'm going to go and going to go and seek out the best teacher teachers of whatever their craft is, wherever they are, whether they're in small town America, whether they're in, you know, Asia, Africa, you know, Europe, I want to find them, whether they're doing basketball or ping pong or sewing, I want to, you know, in a classroom, it's just how I'm wired and everything that I try to do um, is geared towards serving um, the immediate community that I'm working with. And then also, you know, I hope to leave this game better than I found it. And so that's why I share and put things out um, to, to pass on things I'm learning to others. The last thing I was just curious about is you mentioned waking up and feeling grateful and you don't have to actually focus on it. That's just, that's just how you are. What do you do regularly to make sure that you're your best self? I think it's just that. Um, I try to stay present. I, I really do. And it's not easy. Um, especially now with, you know, my lifestyle, you know, I, family's in Cayman and I spend my time traveling for work, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but I, I really just try and stay present. You know, I think that's the one thing that, uh, I do well. And yet, I'm always fighting to be that way. It's like, hey, Seth, put the phone down. Hey, 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 come on back. You know, this is the inner chatter. Like, what's, what's the question behind the question? What is she really asking me? That body language, what's that about? You know, um, and just to, to, to be open. So any, that, any mental, physical, spiritual, emotional practices that, that you have that you lean on uh, to serve you? Through my mom, I grew up in faith. And through my geography, um, I grew up around multiple faiths. You know, I shared earlier going to predominantly Jewish school. My, my brother is Muslim. Um, but you name it. I've been around them all. So there, I don't have uh, a faith per se that I anchor in, but I do feel I'm a person of faith. And I'm, I, I, I don't know if your question was around faith or not, but this is really for me, how I, what comes out of me when you ask me that question, I, I, I don't believe in prayers of petition. Uh, I don't feel like I'm owed anything. And so the only prayer that I say is thank you. And th this, I don't know, for me, it's just, it just anchors 
<laughs> everything. It is everything. Um, so I don't know if I'm answering your question, but this is the beginning and it's the end and it's, but it's more of a loop for me. Like this is, this is just where I'm at. You know, if, if, if in, in the work environment, um, you know, I have a confrontation with a player and we have a breakdown, you know, yeah, I have a flare up emotionally. I get frustrated. Like, why am I not getting through or, you know, and then I pause and I go, okay, hold that. Take a breath. I'm like, so it's one of those, I don't say it explicitly. Thank you. But really it's what it comes back to, right? This is where I'm at. She is teaching me something or he is teaching me something because I'm not having the breakthrough. So what do I need to learn from this? Right. And, and that, that brings me around that kind of calms me down. It allows me to see more clearly and it just allows me to stay open. Maybe I, maybe I don't have the tool or the skill to help this player or who, who could support them. I have zero interest in being the one to solve every problem. I'm perfectly comfortable putting whomever I'm working with in front of the person who can solve it, you know, but starting from a position of gratitude and humility and just being open to the possibility, you know, I'm just laughing because the word I was thinking was humility. And I just want to thank you because that's the word that, that you seem to hone in on. I want to thank you uh, for giving me your time today, uh, for sharing some vulnerable stuff and some stuff that you said earlier that you probably don't talk openly or recorded uh, about. Um, so I want to thank you for your vulnerability and, and also your presence. Um, and I think you have the ability to carry both humility and confidence. And um, in my, all of my readings, all of my learnings, all my experience, the ability to hold both of those um, is, is really big. And then to have the confidence to be humble. Um, like you have that confidence that the humility and the willingness to know that what answer you have today might be wrong. I, I loved what you said earlier about holding your beliefs lightly, uh, but having strong belief, something along those lines. Um, and I think that really sums this conversation up. And so I just want to thank you for your humility and your confidence, because I think it's probably what's helped gotten you here. And I'm curious to see what will either hinder you to get you to wherever you're supposed to be, uh, or what will propel you to get to wherever you are supposed to be. Uh, so thank you so much for the time. Uh, let us know where we can find you on social media. Uh, also, I know you've got some things that you're working on uh, that you want to share with my listeners. So take this time to just use this as a megaphone to just uh, tell people where they can find you and learn more about what you're up to. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give back to you what you gave to me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And you're right. I haven't, uh, I've never spoken about many of the things that we touched on earlier publicly, <laughs> but it's, it's my story and I do embrace it. If there are others who, you know, want to connect, I'm, I'm always interested in, in connecting with like-minded or greater minded people. Um, on my personal account, social media, uh, at Sefu Bernard, S-E-F-U-B-E-R-N-A-R-D. Um, my website is, is the same, my first and last name.com. And um, for people who are uh, coaches uh, and teachers and even parents that are interested in getting sports-specific stuff, uh, at the lab, T-H-E-L-L-A-B-B, -B, um, 
is uh, is my HubSpot. It's where I, you know, it's my little sandbox where I share ideas on uh, what I frame the art and science of uh, player development. There's lots there. And I just launched a new initiative that's geared towards people who are working in the youth sport um, experience. It's at ACX Basketball um, on social, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. That's there. And um, I'm trying to create an offering for um, people who are working with, with, uh, with young people under the age of 16. I think um, they're underserved and uh, we're going astray. And it's really going to have a, a deep and long-lasting impact. And so I feel like I have something to offer. And I feel there are others that I'm networked with who want to speak into this space. And really, um, you know, as I say, we want to learn to crush it with kids. But we got to start with the person first and the needs of kids, the way their brain, their bodies, and their emotion come to life are different than adults. And so that's what that's all about. Well, it's, it's been awesome chatting with you. And you mentioned Mono Watsa earlier, and we talked about Stu Singer. Both of those guys are, are past podcast guests. So if you like this conversation, go check out their conversations. And then we also didn't, I didn't mention that Candace Parker, who's Anthony Parker's sister, uh, and she talked a lot about Anthony on the podcast <laughs> when I interviewed her. Um, and Anthony's got an amazing reputation, which you hit on. Um, and then Sarah Walls, who is your strength and conditioning coach uh, with the Mystics, uh, also a dear friend and uh, just a badass woman and, and someone who uh, is close to my heart. Uh, so it's amazing that our paths haven't crossed before this when I mention all of those people. But I'm grateful that Stu connected us. Uh, and looking forward to following the rest of the season and seeing what you guys are able to do. It looks like uh, a lot of special stuff going on. And I know last year was a special season as well. So keep up the good work, keep enjoying what you're doing. Uh, and, and I love your energy and your smile and your passion for this work. And um, I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. And then you can listen to all of these episodes at intentionalperformers.com. If you like this conversation, go over to iTunes and write us a review. It really does help us expand people like Seifu's reach. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast and looking forward to chatting again soon. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. I'm going to go and going to go and seek out the best teacher teachers of whatever their craft is wherever they are whether they're in small town america whether they're in you know asia africa you know europe i want to find them whether they're doing basketball or ping pong or sewing i want to you know in a classroom it's just how i'm wired and everything that i try to do um, is geared towards serving um, the immediate community that I'm working with and then also, you know, I hope to leave this game better than I found it. And so that's why I share and put things out um, to, to pass on things I'm learning to others.